Our scripture reading today comes from Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Great to see you all. Uh, if you're joining us online, so happy that you're here. We would love to know that you're here and be able to connect with you better. Thank you, Laura, for reading the scripture this morning. We're going to be starting our sermon series in the book of Philippians today, and we're going to be in Philippians from now until December, and I'm very excited, and I know Harrison and Drew are as well, and we look forward to digging into this together as a church. A little bit about the context of Philippians before we dive into the sermon. It's a letter written by Paul to the church at Philippi. Paul planted this church at Philippi in his third missionary journey. You can read about it in Acts 16, and I encourage you to do that so you can know a little bit of the context of how this church was started. But Paul went first time to Europe in Greece from Asia Minor, and he met a group of Jewish women there and proclaimed the gospel to them, and he saw his first believer in Europe believe, Lydia, a wealthy merchant. And Paul continued to proclaim the gospel, and he freed a slave girl from demonic attack, and the result was that he was imprisoned and persecuted. But while in prison, he proclaimed the gospel to the jailer there, and the jailer believed as well, he and his whole household. Now, the letter was written about 10 years after all of that, 10 years after the Philippian church was founded. Paul had continued his ministry, and he had eventually been imprisoned and sent to Rome to appear before Caesar. And Paul writes this letter to the Philippian church from Rome. He wrote it in response to Epaphroditus, one of the ministers there being sent by the church at Philippi to Rome to encourage Paul, to give him a gift, and to help him in the midst of his suffering. Two things that are important that also prompted him to write that letter. During his ministry, Paul raised money for the persecuted, impoverished church in Jerusalem. And the Philippian church were incredibly generous with their financial support to both Jerusalem and to Paul and his ministry. And so Paul wanted to thank them. The Philippians had joyfully partnered with Paul, the one who had first shared the gospel with them, so that others might also hear this wonderful news of the gospel. So Paul wanted to thank them and encourage them. A last component of the context is the broader religious situation between Jews and Christians at this time. The gospel had seen great success spreading among both Jew and Gentile throughout the Mediterranean world. However, the result was that there was also a great deal of persecution. Many Jews who did not believe in Jesus as the Savior opposed 
the gospel or try to subvert it and get the new Gentile believers to follow Jewish customs and laws. These people were known as Judaizers, and they led many people astray. And so many of Paul's letters to the early church were a result of this controversy, and Philippians is no different. Let's pray, and then we'll dive into our sermon. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us that we might know you better and know how we are to live in this world. Please speak to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A recent study completed within the past year found that polarization in America over the past 40 years has progressed faster than in any other democracy in the world. The study examined eight other countries with similar cultural backgrounds, the UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, Germany, Switzerland, Norway, and Sweden. And they used four decades in every single one of these countries, four decades worth of public opinion surveys. And one of the key things they'd examined was how people view members of their own party in contrast with people of other parties. And the study found in 1978, the average American rated the member of their own political party 27 points higher than members of the other major party. And by 2016, Americans were rating their own party 46 points higher than the other party on average. In other words, negative feelings toward members of the other party compared to one's own party increased by an average of about five points per decade. And in some of these other countries, polarization actually decreased. And so something is going on here in modern American culture, and it's not just with politics. It's so much more in every area of the American life. We are becoming more and more polarized, even, sadly, in the church. But God calls us through his word to live in a different type of community, a community where we approach one another with love, seeking to understand and call each other to live the life that God has called us to live. I love this quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, where he says, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. What is Bonhoeffer saying? He's saying that if we have this ideal community, if we have these dreams, and if we hold other people to those dreams, we're going to destroy community because people are never going to live up to the expectations that we have. But rather, if we love them in the manner God calls us to and hold them to a high standard that God calls them to, and love them despite their failings, we will create true community. Paul's letters were always prompted by the situations in the local church, and Philippi is no different. They were experiencing hardship, poverty. They were actually quite poor church despite their generosity. They were experiencing persecution from Gentile secular government. Judaizers within the church and without were tempting them to abandon God's grace for customs and laws. And so they were struggling with the same things we struggle with. But in the face of both a hostile secular world and a hostile religious world, the Philippian church was able to cultivate a truly unique community, one transformed by the gospel. So the idea that we're going to explore today in our passage is that our good heavenly father will complete his salvation in us. And so we should live in transformed community right now. Our good heavenly father will complete his salvation in us. So we should live in transformed community right now. In verse 6, we see how Paul expresses his confidence that God will complete the good work of salvation in the Philippian church. The work that he started will be finished. And so, this confidence in God and his salvation should lead them to live radically different in the present, in a transformed community that will shock the surrounding world. 
And in our passage, we see three characteristics of this transformed community. The gospel of Jesus Christ, humble unity in Christ, and communal partnership. First, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The transformed community of Jesus' church should have the gospel at its very center and as its foundation. It needs to be foundational both in the life of the individual and in the life of the community. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel literally means good news. The good news of God's salvation. His salvation from sin and the death that results from sin. Sin is simply disobeying God, our maker, who has told us how we are to live and has every right to do so because we are his creation. Sin leads to death, but the good news is that though we have sinned against God, our rightful king and our creator, he has graciously taken away our sin by placing the punishment we deserve on Jesus Christ. And the result is that we are restored to a right relationship with him, given adoption as children of God, and made into his likeness over time. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul summarizes it very succinctly, both the negative and the positive. For our sake, he made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. The negative, God took our sin, the things we have done wrong, and put them on Jesus. And then he took Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' good life, and he put them on us, the positive. This morning, we've already sung about this wonderful good news. In the song, His Mercy is More, it says, What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. God's mercy, his grace is more than all of our sins. That is the good news. That is the gospel. And it must be foundational to the community if it's going to be a transformed community. And we see the gospel or its results sprinkled throughout this opening greeting and prayer. You see a typical letter, just like maybe when you learned in elementary school how to write a letter, there's a form letter. That was typical in Paul's day. But the typical greeting was very short. It was three words. It would have been Paul, Philippians, Greetings, done. How many words does Paul use here? He uses two verses, sentences of greetings. Paper and ink during that day was precious, and he didn't waste a word. He transforms this greeting to sprinkle the gospel throughout it. And verse 2, as I already said, the typical letter merely said greetings. But what does Paul say? He greets them with the confident hope they will experience God's grace and peace both central to the message of the gospel. It's in the gospel that we find grace, God's unmerited favor. It's in the gospel that we have peace with both God and man. God, Paul transforms the greeting to emphasize the gospel. In verse 1, Paul doesn't just say Paul and Timothy. He says Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. The word servants here is actually better translated as slaves. Gone is the competition for success, supremacy, desire to prove yourself before others, finding his identity in his achievements, Paul is delighted to be a lowly servant of the king, the king and the savior. And he's glad to proclaim it to everybody in every single one of his letters. In verse one, he greets the Philippian church, not merely as Philippi or the Philippian church. He says, the saints in Christ Jesus. Saints literally means holy ones. Gone is the view that they are troublesome or burdensome or sinners. 
No, they are saints in Christ Jesus. The gospel is about, though our sins being many, God's grace being so much more, so that now we are holy in God's sight, righteous, pleasing to him, adopt, adopted, beloved daughters and sons. In verse 6, Paul expresses his confident expectation that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. God's work of salvation in his people will be accomplished because it doesn't depend on you, it doesn't depend on me, but it depends on God's character, God's promises, and he will see his people saved in the last day. We have that confident hope. That is part of the gospel, that it has begun and it will be finished. In summary, as Paul opens his letter to the church at Philippi, he leads with the wonderful good news of the gospel that has implications for everything, and so it must be foundational in our lives, individually and collectively. The good news is that Jesus died in our place for the wrong we have done against God and others, died so that we did not have to taste that spiritual death, and we now have Jesus' life and righteousness, which leads to adoption as God's children and a place in his family which is secure. We couldn't do this on our own. We were completely unable. We were dead. This gospel is not just future-oriented, a get-out-of-hell-and-into-heaven card, but this gospel has implications for us individually and communally right now. Louis Zamperini was in the Air Force during World War II. His plane was shot down over the Pacific Ocean, and he was caught by the Japanese and made a prisoner of war. During his captivity, he was severely mistreated, beaten and tortured almost every day by many of the Japanese guards. One of his tormentors became one of the 40 most wanted war criminals after World War II ended. Zamperini finally returned to America as a hero. He got married, tried to get back to his normal life, but the horrific experience of what he had done to others and what had been done to him followed him. And so he began to drink heavily just to try to forget his experience. He had nightmares of strangling the former prison guards whom he hated. One time he woke up from a nightmare strangling his own pregnant wife. Zamperini could not find peace. He was consumed by hate towards those who had harmed him. We can somewhat understand, right? Eventually he attended a Billy Graham event with his wife at her encouraging, and he heard about the love and forgiveness of God available in Jesus Christ. He believed, and his heart was transformed. He eventually had the opportunity to return to Japan, and he met some of the former guards who had mistreated him, tortured him so horribly. And they stepped forward from a crowd to acknowledge that they had recognized him, and Zamperini went to them, embraced them, and told them he forgave them because of God's love. Zamperini, because of Jesus Christ, did not let the hate consume him and transform his heart. Rather, he was transformed by having met Jesus Christ and received grace and peace, which then overflowed into grace and peace extended towards others. The gospel calls for a response. The gospel calls for us to respond and repent of our sins. We should respond in faith, trust, acceptance of all that God has done. If you're here this morning, if you haven't responded, then I invite you and encourage you, believe in Jesus Christ and what he has done for you. When we respond in repentance of our sins and faith in the salvation that's available to us, then we will receive God's grace and peace 
and it will bear fruit in our lives over time as we are restored to relationships with others. God's grace takes away our sin and gives us Christ's perfect record. God's grace adopts us as children of God. God's grace will see us through to the end where we, the good work of God's salvation, will be completed. This grace then allows us to respond to others with grace instead of defensiveness. Grace instead of manipulation, instead of control, instead of gossip, instead of division, anger, slander, and so much else that divides the community of God's church. God gives us peace in the gospel with himself and with others, a peace that relieves us from the striving of proving our worth in front of everybody else, a peace that allows us to live in this broken, sinful world with all the struggles and hardships that come along with it, a peace that allows us to live for others' good, first and foremost, rather than seeking to improve ourselves at the expense of others. The transformed community needs to have the gospel of God's grace and peace as its center, as its very foundation. Otherwise, we cannot live as God calls us to live in this difficult world. This grace and peace received in the gospel should lead to the humble unity and communal partnership of the next two points. If we don't get the gospel right, if we don't keep this at the center, both individually and corporately, then we will not be able to live in humble unity. We will not be able to have a true communal partnership. The second thing we see in this is that the transformed community is the church, in the church should demonstrate a humble unity in Christ Jesus. We see the humble unity which should exist among those who are in Christ, again, sprinkled throughout Paul's prayer and greetings. In verse 1, Paul and Timothy, writing the letter, call themselves slaves of Christ Jesus. They don't boast of their position or influence. They don't say the right Reverend Paul and Timothy. They don't boast of their accredited degrees from the seminary of Gamaliel. They are humble because they realize the most important thing is that they are servants of Jesus Christ, servants of the very church that they are writing to. The greeting and prayer is overflowing with humble thanksgiving and joy for the Philippians. In verse 3 to 4, we see how Paul thanks God for them, making his prayer with joy. Why? Why does he thank God for them? Because of their partnership in the gospel, how they are striving along with him, and how God is working in them and their lives to bear fruit. In verse 8, Paul expresses his joy, gratitude, and love for them as he says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The humble unity between Paul and the Philippians was based on mutual love, affection, and joy. The greeting and prayer demonstrate unity between Christians. There's unifying words throughout, all, with me, for you, predominate again and again. Paul and Timothy remember the Philippians in their prayers constantly, he says, and this demonstrates a unity as their concerns, their struggles, are Paul and Timothy's concerns and struggles. They're not isolated. They're not individual. They are a community. The verse, is, the verse is true. When the Philippians hear of Paul's struggles and difficulty, when they hear how he's in prison, languishing away, what do they do? Oh, man, that must be really difficult for Paul. No. They gather together a collection, despite the fact that they were very poor, and they send it by way of Epaphroditus to Paul in order to encourage him. Paul's struggles are their struggles. The importance of humble unity in the life of the Christians will be shown throughout the letter, especially when we get to Philippians 2, where Jesus is praised 
as the true expression of humble unity. We as Christians should be humbly united in Christ, which will impact so much of our relationships and how we interact with one another. And the root of our humble unity is that we are all in Christ. We have all been saved by him and adopted into the family of God because of what he did. The gospel and the fact that each of us stand at the foot of the cross is what unites us. None of us brings anything special to the table. All of us came with backpacks of sin that were relieved by Jesus Christ. And so none of us have a special seat at the table. We are all humbly at the foot of the cross, all equal before God. Isn't this what consumed our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ the night before he went to the cross? In John 17, we read how he prayed the high priestly prayer where he pleads with God the Father that his people, the church, might be one just as he and the Father were one. If he prayed that before he went to the cross, how can we not understand the central importance of this unity, this humble unity, which Jesus, as he went to the cross to die and secure our salvation, was consumed with the fact that we as a church would sadly so often be divided. The example of humble unity throughout the Philippians places a call upon each one of our lives. We should pray with thanksgiving for fellow believers. And we should pray for God's work here in them right now and through them out there in the world. Do we honestly pray regularly for those here gathered together? We must each examine our hearts. Are we praying regularly like Paul does constantly, he says? Two, are we rejoicing with delight at God's work in one another? This is so important because rejoicing at God's work in each other counteracts the division that is the normal human heart posture when it comes to people that we don't like or people who disagree with us. Are we rejoicing over those who we might disagree with? Rejoicing at the fact that in Jesus Christ they are saved and beloved children of God. As we humbly think of ourselves and others correctly, this will have results in our interactions in our community and our relationships. All of us are partakers of God's grace. Therefore, we all stand equally at the foot of the cross, equally in need of God's salvation. Our view of others' concerns and struggles will then be transformed. We will see one another and see our struggles and our concerns as not just something that that person over there has, but something that we need to be concerned with, that we need to get involved with, that we need to walk alongside one another in. This is so important, especially in the individualistic society that we live in, where we desperately need true community. People are longing for it, searching for it, and they're not going to find it at Starbucks. They're not going to find it at another place. True community is here where we can humbly come alongside one another because of what Jesus has done for us. The transformed community will, third, live out communal partnership between Christians. The very fact that Paul is writing a letter to the Philippians represents this communal gospel partnership. Paul viewed the churches he planted as partners in the gospel. He did not view them merely as churches that needed to send him financial support or churches that needed to be there for him to have a place to stay when he came through on his preaching circuit. He viewed them as partners in the gospel. The partnership is not merely a one-way street. Paul's teaching and leading the Philippians. No, it was so much more than that. Paul's letter was in response to what? The visit of Epaphroditus, their partnership with Paul. 
they saw his need, his struggles, his difficulty, his discouragement, and they went to him. And he's writing this letter in response to them. The Bible is much more community-oriented than our modern American individualism. Typically, when we read Scripture, we see all these yous, and we think, oh yeah, you as in me. But all of these yous, almost every single one of them are plural. They're you all, y'all. But we often think of them in the purely singular. In verse 1, Paul and Timothy call themselves servants, as we've already mentioned multiple times. But servants for what reason? And servants of who? Servants to serve in his mission, God's mission, on behalf of people everywhere. Servants of the very church to which they were writing to. They were partners together. Verse 5, Paul directs, directly thanks God for the partnership in the gospel that exists between the Philippians himself. He says, a partnership that, that you have been partners with me in the gospel. A partnership that has existed from the very beginning of the church. What did this partnership look like? The word partnership here is the word koinonia, often translated fellowship. And this word involves all types of relationship that had mutual interests and in sharing. One scholar writes, marriage and family relationships, friendships, business partnerships, common ownership of property, citizenship, and religious organizations were all considered examples of koinonia in Paul's day, fellowship, partnership. A major purpose of this letter is to transform the experience of koinonia in the light of the life of Jesus Christ. The partnerships that were common in that day and age were being transformed by Jesus and the gospel. Friendship was being transformed so that it became so deep that it wasn't just friendship, it was family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are God's family here. A community transformed by the salvation and the gospel is what Paul had in mind when he was writing this letter. A community that truly cared for one another in the same manner that God cares for each one of us. A community that has a common mission and purpose, advancing the gospel in the lives of ourselves, our family, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers. We are on mission together. And that's why we're partnering together. It seems that what was in view by Paul, thanking God for the Philippians' partnership in the gospel was the deep relationships that existed between them, a relationship that overflowed in mutual care, support, and mission together. And we're all in communal partnership for the sake of the good news of the gospel, a partnership that exists first between God himself and his people, and then between all of us together. We might think of God's call on us as Christians to live in a transformed community that partners together with a, a number of different analogies. We are like an orchestra playing together following our one conductor, Jesus Christ, bringing a rich melody because of our diverse but unified parts. We are like a rowing team straining together to win the race, more effective because of our communal strength together. We, as Paul like to say, are like a body one body with many different parts. All of the parts of the body are necessary and useful, but have different responsibilities, roles. But the members of the body partner together and are stronger because of the different gifts, skills, experience, and roles that every single one of us here bring to EP Church. 
as we believe in the gospel and our lives begin to be transformed, we are called into communal partnership in the mission of the gospel, partnership with God as he works in and through us, and partnership with one another as we participate in life and ministry together. So what are some of the ways that are happening right now here at EP Church? I want to take a moment together to praise God and thank many of you for what is happening here. We have so many ministries that despite the pandemic are still ongoing. Sunday morning worship, it's not just myself or Pastor Harrison. There are so many people. There's the worship team that's here up here every Sunday that come early in the morning to prepare. We are so thankful for them. There's people that are back there who prepare the slides. There's people who are doing the live streaming. We could not do all of this without them. And it is partnering together for the sake of the gospel. On Sunday morning now, we're going to be having EP Kids Crew, Noah's Ark Preschool, Student Ministry, and there are people who are volunteering, using their gifts and skills to build up our church body, and we are so thankful for them. Our equip groups, as you heard this morning, are starting. We have well over 15 teachers, because some classes have two or more teachers, and they are using their gifts and skills to help us as a church grow and be equipped in the gospel. Our Renew groups are starting up. We have well over 20 Renew groups that are going to be starting here this week. That is exciting. That is an opportunity for people to have true gospel community where they can be transformed. We have so many outreach efforts that are happening. ESL ministry that's going to be happening every Monday night. The pop-up pantry that we partner with, which has been ongoing for a year and a half and has fed thousands of people when they were struggling to make ends meet. Winter Relief, where we host often 30 or more individuals who are homeless in the depths of winter, and so much more. There's so much more happening, and we are so thankful for the ways many of you partner selflessly in that. And we encourage many more of you to come alongside us and invite you to participate with us in all the opportunities, many of which I didn't even name yet. Beyond that, we have elders, deacons, staff, elders who give of their time beyond their work to pray for the church and be in meetings to shepherd and care for the church. Deacons who are here faithfully serving the church so often, coming alongside people in mercy opportunities, staff who work above and beyond. It is such a privilege and joy, I know, for myself and for Harrison to partner alongside with so many of you. So I want to invite many of you to participate. If you aren't involved, please reach out. Get involved in opportunities to be part of this gospel partnership. And I also want to ask you to pray. Pray for the ministries that are happening. Pray for the people whose lives are being touched and transformed as we partner together to proclaim the gospel in people's lives. Another way that you have been partnering here at EP Church is in your giving. And I want to express my gratitude along with Harrison, the session, everybody else involved in church leadership for how you have given sacrificially to our church. I know many of you, if you look back and think and reflect to a year ago when we passed our last year's budget, we gave you the news that we were very far behind. And we are finishing this year strong. Giving is above budget. We have also installed this live streaming uh, service, which was giving above what was in the budget. We have, uh, during the pandemic, given $160,000 out through our Mercy Fund, and our Mercy Fund still has well over $140,000 in it. 
We have given money to people in our church, people in the community. A, a good amount of that money has gone to keep people in their homes because they would have been evicted otherwise, to keep their lights and heat on, their air conditioning on, because otherwise it would have been cut off or they would have been evicted. It has kept people in halfway houses who are struggling with addictions. Your giving has blessed so many people. Thank you. Beyond that, one thing I want to highlight is the missions. Every year, EP Church gives almost $375,000 to missions to take the gospel around Annapolis, around the nation, and around the world. The Bible is being translated into languages in Cameroon, Africa, because of your giving. The gospel is being proclaimed in Japan, in India, in so many places around the world because you all give sacrificially. Thank you. The communal gospel partnership which Paul and the Philippians had was so much more than just church activities or giving. The partnership was deep, transformative relationships that saw God's kingdom advance in the lives of their friends, families, neighbors, even in the midst of suffering and difficulty. So I encourage you, if all you do is come here on one Sunday a week, you're missing so much more. Please, I invite you to connect with us and be part of the relationships happening here. Maybe you hear this call to humbly unite and partner in communal gospel proclamation. You think, how can I do that? I can't do that, Nathan. You're right. You can't. I can't. On our own, we cannot be humbly united. We will be divided and divisive, arrogantly prideful. On our own, we cannot truly seek the good of those around us in true gospel partnership but we have a Lord and Savior who did. We have trusted in the one who was humble, though he was the Son of God, who died that we might be united to him, who sought our good before his own, so that we in turn might be saved from sin, saved from our selfishness, saved from our divisiveness. And as we place our faith in him, as we respond to the good news of the gospel, he will transform our lives by the Holy Spirit. He is the one who has promised to complete the good work of salvation in each and every one of us. It's dependent on him, his character, his promises, his goodwill. And as he works in us, we can live as part of a transformed community. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you are here in our, and, and we are in your presence. We pray, Lord God, that you would work in us as we see your Holy Spirit working out our salvation as we trust and rely on you, help us, Lord God, to live in transformed community. Help us to place the gospel of Jesus Christ, which brings grace and peace into our lives, at the very center and foundation of our relationships and our community. Help us, Lord God, to be humbly united, to willingly sacrifice for one another, and help us to go out in partnership by proclaiming the gospel, being part of this church family. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.